Hope you got a Bible. We're going to be in Exodus 5. This is one of the uh, one of the most iconic chapters and exchanges in all the Bible. Um, of course, it's historical as well. Um, you've watched movies about this. Uh, you've heard sermons about this. Um, and this kind of chapter makes an okay preacher look pretty good if he just gets out of the way of the text. So um, there's a few chapters like that in the Bible that just are so rich and so powerful. So I want to just give place to the Word up front tonight. I want to read this chapter. It's a little, um, it's not that long, but I want to read it all to kind of set the stage. Then we're going to talk a little bit about how this fits into the narrative of Exodus so we kind of know kind of the angle that Moses and that God's coming at us with. And then we're going to talk in detail about this text. So we're going to have a good time tonight. Have look forward to preaching this uh, for the last little while. So Exodus 5, uh, the scripture says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went into, and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord of Israel, Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So the, day, so the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and said to their officers, You shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as, as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words." The taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourself straw where you can find it, yet none of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters forced him to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota as when there were straw, was straw. Also the officers of the children of Israel, whom the Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants. And they say to us, Make brick. And indeed, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, idle. Therefore you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore go now and work, for no straw shall be given you. Yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. Then as as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh in the sight of his servants, to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. 
So can you, can you just gather the, the layers of conflict here, right? Obviously, they're already in slavery to, to Egypt. We have Moses and Pharaoh exchanging barbs. We have Pharaoh making it harder on the people. We have the people um, becoming more and more weary under their burdens. We have the people becoming angry at Moses because Moses made things worse on them. We have Pharaoh trying to, to talk the people out of believing in a God that wants to deliver them and accept the slavery that they have been in. So I, this chapter is just bubbling with uh, with topics and with, with a message tonight. So before we get into all that, um, I think we can kind of gather from just kind of the, 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 the text itself that this is the first big confrontation um, that has been built, we've been building up towards between Moses and Pharaoh. And of course, this is only the beginning. Um, it foreshadows what will be um, over uh, nearly 10 chapters of, of climactic encounters and of course, there are some big events to come um, between Pharaoh and Moses and the people there in Egypt. I, I want to kind of set this up in a pretty relevant way. I want to frame this in terms of, 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 in a way that I think we're well versed in. Because remember, our angle in this Wednesday night study is to appreciate the word, appreciate the way it's been presented and the way it's been recorded and the way God wants us to receive it. The word, the text that has been written and preserved throughout all of history. Uh, so I, I honestly think that any modern day series of books or movies draws a lot of inspiration from the style and the presentation uh, that the Bible presents the history, history of God and his people. And I really think that any modern series, any modern epic or any modern um, a narrative of nonfiction or, or, or of fictional stories, they draw a lot from this historical uh, encounter between God's people in Egypt. Now, of course, this is actual history, so um, all the events and encounters recorded in the Bible actually happened, so we believe that and take it as, as truth, but it was all written, right? We didn't, we're not seeing this as it played out. We're, we're reading it as it's been recorded, um, so it was all written, and especially Exodus was written in a very narrative, very well-put-together way, um, so that when we pick it up and read it, um, that we receive it in a very particular and powerful way that there's something very powerful about the story form that this story that this history is recorded in and I think we should appreciate that um, and kind of step back and, and, and understand that tonight kind of from a 30,000 foot view um, and, and if you think of this like a series of books or a series of movies that we might would consume in our modern day um, imagine the first four chapters of Exodus as the first installment um, imagine what we've read so far about Moses uh, coming to know God and the people um, in their bondage. Imagine the first four chapters of Exodus um, as the first installment in this big saga. And let's call it Exodus Revelation, where we learn about a special group of people enslaved to an evil empire who see that hope is on the horizon. That could be a, a, a pretty concise summary of the first four chapters. And if this was one, if this was kind of its own installment, it would be the story of a people in slavery, a special group of people under the heel of an evil empire. And it turns out this special group of people has a pretty powerful history, but they don't know it or they aren't really aware of their own history, but they come to know it along the way. Um, it's been a long time since they were a free people and they're out of touch with their own history. And any pieces of it are really just remembered as legends and myths. And in this first act, in this first installment, we become aware that this special group of people are actually God's people. The only God's people. 
And of course, the world that, we are, that they are living in thinks there are many gods, hundreds of gods. But no one in the world actually knows the one true God. And the only people who have a recent connection with Him, they're enslaved to the empire that rules the world. Yet again, they're centuries removed from any encounter or interaction with their God. And most of them haven't even heard His name before. As the evil empire seeks to disable the slaves, they begin to population control and power control, ordering all the baby boys be thrown into the river to be killed. But one mother holds on to the legends of old, hoping for the God of her ancestors, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, hoping for Him to return to them. She places her baby boy in the ark, hoping that somebody in Egypt finds him and raises him. And perhaps God might raise him up to change her people's future. Of course, that's exactly what happens, right? And we've learned about that so far. The story begins with that God, their God, the only God, looking down on His people and deciding the time is right to re-enter the picture. And of course, we've learned how Moses begins to seek out his own history, learning about Israel's God, becoming an exile after he tries to save his people on his own. He encounters God in the desert, 40 years later, and God reveals to Moses his plan to save Israel. Now, taking all that in, that's a pretty, that's a pretty packed movie. That's a pretty packed book, right? That's a pretty uh, intent and, and, and a lot of stuff going on, right? And we've learned, uh, and, and, and we talked a little bit last time about God's plan, and God's plan that we're introduced to in those first four chapters. His plan is not simply to reintroduce himself to his people, but introduce himself to all people. Overall, that's what the events of Exodus and the events of the whole Bible, right, serve, a pretty, serve that purpose uh, for, to reintroduce God to Israel and introduce Him to the whole world. And He will do so by delivering the weakest from the strongest, and His glory would rise forever because of it. And if you read the Old Testament, they always call back to this encounter in Exodus, this encounter in Egypt, where God delivers the weakest from the strongest, as the moment that the God of Israel became a world-renowned figure. By toppling the empire and exposing its gods, Yahweh would be exalted and Israel established, and the redemption story would finally begin, as God would go on to use Israel to redeem the whole world from its greatest bondage, sin. So the events of Exodus and the record of Exodus sees all this begin and spells all this out. The first act, God moves and raises up a messenger. The second act, God's messenger confronts the evil king and ultimately leads the people out of slavery. And the third act, the messenger leads people out of slavery to the mountain where they learn all about and meet their God. Of course, all that sets up a future that you can read about and, and read about beyond Exodus. And while they're at the mountain, the messenger gets revelation about their past. And he fills them in on their backstory because it's on the mountain that he receives the revelation that we have as the book of Genesis. So if we're talking about all this as it was originally given, at, the Mount, at Mount Sinai, Moses writes the backstory, which is Genesis, and he writes about the reveal of God to his people in the first four chapters. 5 through 15 is the rescue, 
It even ends with a song, right? It's just this wonderful celebration. And then the last half of Exodus is where they find refuge with their God. And the reason I bring this attention, and the reason I think the Exodus is so important as kind of ground zero for the whole Bible, is Moses lived it, and then he wrote it, right? So it's important to understand that Exodus has this special place as kind of the, 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 the ground that the rest of the Bible comes from because Moses lived through all this, then he wrote it all down. And of course, all of his writings go on to set the tone and set the stage for the whole Bible and the whole redemption story in general because, yes, there is more to come. This is just phase one. In the middle chapter of, this is the middle chapter of the biggest trilogy, and, and you know this from your own readings and maybe your favorite movie franchise, the middle chapter is always kind of the most intense. It's usually everybody's favorite because of all the action and all the, the payoff from the setup, and it leaves you wanting more. And this middle part of Exodus leaves us wanting so much more. And thankfully, as Christians in the New Testament age, we know how all this kind of comes to an end and, and, and is fulfilled in the end of the first ark, Moses is called by God to go and confront Pharaoh. And he picks up a sidekick along the way. He reunites with his brother, Aaron, who maybe he never met before. And God had begun moving among the camps of the Hebrews. He calls Aaron to go out and meet his brother. And they team together to go and face Pharaoh. So all that being set up, Moses and Aaron make their way back to Egypt. And they face the greatest challenge of their lives. And to bring this to a place of personal application rather than just kind of standing back and saying ooh and ah at the story because it's a pretty awesome story. But I think there's a lot of personal applications for us to learn tonight um, as we talk about confronting the enemy, as we talk about facing the enemy. Moses and Aaron give us tremendous insight as to how we are to face the enemy, face our enemies, and what God wants to say through us and say to us. And of course, we all know uh, the, the famous line that Moses says to Pharaoh in verse number one. We've read it. I'd like us all to say it together, at least those four words. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. What does he say? Let my people go, right? We've all heard that. You've watched the movies. Let my people go. That was God's message to Pharaoh. That was, was Moses' words from God to Pharaoh. But he had more to say. That they may hold a feast. That they may fellowship with me. So it's not just, hey, let them go. But I've got somewhere I'm taking them. God's message of redemption from the very beginning. To the enemy is let my people go. To his people is come and dine. I don't have to show up, throw up all the New Testament verses where Jesus gives an invitation and paints a picture of how the kingdom is a big feast uh, as a momentous gathering around a table. But the idea here is, and what I think God wants us to get right out of the gate is, that outside of God's care and outside of God's rule, we are in bondage. We are being starved. That's why the New Testament is all kind of invites us to this grand feast, this, this beautiful banquet, because apart from God's care and apart from God's leadership, we are being starved of life itself. Remember, Moses was, a, was as God's voice, and Aaron was as God's word to the enemy. So Moses literally was just kind of whispering in Aaron's ear, right? Because he was too nervous and he had a stuttering problem. So God used Aaron as his mouthpiece. We need not try to negotiate with the enemy. We can trust in God's word and let God do the talking. The word will try to fight the battle. We'll fight the battles that we can't. 
and it will cut through and navigate and be the firepower that we can't be and that we don't have sense to know how to be in the first place. Verse 2, the enemy tries to play it tough. Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice? Do you know who I am? I'm the king of Egypt. I have all the power in the world. And maybe your enemies and your temptations and your vices, they say to you every day, you try to break free from them. Do you not know who I am? Do you think I pay any homage or any honor to the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey Him and let you go? I don't have to ask you if that's how the enemy speaks to you because I know that's how he plays. I know that because I've experienced it. The enemy hears God's word and he looks at me and he looks at you and he says to us every single day, I'm immune to that. I'm greater than the power of your God's voice. But that is absolutely false. He is terrified of God's voice. The enemy tries to disregard and pretend to pay no attention. And your vices and your, your addictions and your struggles and your weaknesses, they attempt to say to you, not going to work on me. That is an absolute lie and don't let the devil fool you. The enemy knows and the enemy fears God's Word. He is desperate to convince us to not turn towards and not tune into God. And Pharaoh immediately says, oh, not going to work on me. I don't know who your God is. not going to listen to His commands. He has no power over me. Of course, he absolutely does. See, if the enemy can keep you in line, if the enemy can keep you under his control, our fate is never placed in God's Word, and the Word is never released to, uh, to have its full potential and power and protection over us. See, if he keeps you submissive and he controls you with doubt and fear, then you never trust God's Word and God's Word is never given the freedom and the power to come over you and to work through you and to work against the enemy. More on that in a minute, but notice the dialogue in verse 3 and 4. The enemy, the Pharaoh says, the God of the Hebrews has met with us, or they say to, they say to Pharaoh, please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we might sacrifice but the king rebukes them. Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? He calls them out and he says, you, you men, you're taking them away from their purpose. Their purpose is to be my slaves. Their purpose is to let me pull their strings. Their purpose is to do what they've always done. They can't be any greater than that. They can't ever break free from that. Don't you see? I am their master. And maybe your, your weaknesses and your temptations and your vices and your addictions and your struggles, they look at you and they say to you every single day, are you, are, you're just silly. You really think you can ever be more than just what you are. They talk down to us. They belittle us. They degrade us. And we read from verses 5 through 9 that Pharaoh rolls his sleeves up and he says, I'll show these people. I'm going to turn the fire up even hotter. Not only are they going to continue to be in, under my control, I'm going to make their life even more difficult. And do you know that? That, that, that? that the enemy works that way? That means there's more temptation that comes your way? Maybe the coworker that seems to be under his control is even more under his control? That person in your family that just continually allows the enemy to use them all of a sudden seems as if they're possessed by him? That's not a coincidence. When the enemy sees you trying to break free, when you begin to lean into God and follow after God, he begins to turn the fire up even more because he's afraid of losing you. 
In verses 10 through 14, the taskmasters of the people and the officers went out and spoke to the people. And instead of, whereas Moses and Aaron said, thus says the Lord, these servants of the devil, these servants of Pharaoh say, thus says Pharaoh. Right? Isn't that how it works? And all of a sudden, the, the voice of Pharaoh is more powerful over the people than the voice of God. And it's only more powerful if you give it the place to be. If you allow it to be that powerful. The enemy speaks down to us. To hold us down. To hold us back. God, rather, speaks over us, extending a hand to raise us up. You can't, you know, the, the divide isn't more clear. Verses 15 through 21, you'll know from our reading that the officers, the people of Israel, begin to cry out and begin to try to, to reason with Pharaoh. Why have you made things worse on us? We're trying our best to meet the quota, but we just can't seem to do it. And you've made it more severe on us. The burdens are too heavy. This is what happens when we listen to the enemy and believe his lies rather than trusting in God's promise. Now, of course, this was a part of the process of redemption. Of course, the history played out the way it did. But they didn't have to remain in the position of inferiority before Pharaoh. Listen, there may be some seasons of your life where, you're not, where you don't break free from the physical bondage that you're in. Maybe because of the family situation, your work situation. There may be seasons of your life where you don't, things don't get better physically. But that doesn't mean that you have to give that kind of power to the words of the enemy. And that doesn't mean you can't start walking in God's freedom, whether your environment and your scenario changes quick or not. That's what God is at work in this ark to do more than anything. To liberate their souls from bondage, not just our flesh and not just the physical things that we struggle with. Because that's the bigger and much more important redemption story at play throughout the whole Bible Throughout all time. Because that's the bigger... Because we'll see even when they get out of Egypt, they struggle mentally to walk in the freedom they've been afforded. They still see themselves as slaves, behave as if they're still controlled by the enemy. God forbid we ever remain under His yoke after we've been given that kind of freedom. The Apostle Paul pleads with us in Galatians 5, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. But our nature is so beat down by sin. Maybe you don't know this about yourself, and I'm not trying to, to, to speak down to you. I'm talking about what I struggle with. Our nature is so beat down by sin and so weakened by sin that we naturally bow to lesser gods. We think we can't do better. We think we can't be better. We think we can't believe better. Notice in verse 16, one of the few, a few examples where they say to Pharaoh, your servants are beaten. They refer to themselves as his servants. When we've learned they're not his servants. And God is trying to free them from that place. But it starts up here. It starts here. They saw themselves as servants of the enemy, but God declared that they were, what does verse 1 tell us? They're his people, right? And they're saying, oh, we're your servants. And God says, no, 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 that's where you're going wrong. You're not his servants. You're my people. God is the initiator here. He says to us, you're mine. I'm raising your potential. I'm raising your possibility. You're no longer slaves. You're no longer servants to sin. You're mine. You're my children. You are capable of so much more. 
Pharaoh talks down to them, trying to delegitimize God's calling over them. He attempts to discourage them to do the same or deliver the same quota. You know, some of us, we've accepted that faith is for the weak. We've resorted to doing the same and making no progress at all, and we've been making excuses because we have been so beaten down by the enemy. Isn't it true? Now, haven't you heard me say this? You've heard me say this before, but haven't you heard, and maybe you've said it yourself, maybe you've believed the lie. Well, that's just how I am. That's how I'm always going to be, Justin. And, and not only that's how I'm going to be, that's how my whole family is. We've always been enslaved to this same problem. We are a generation of slaves. Have you ever said that before? And you're struggling. I'm not saying you're not struggling. I, I get it. I get it. It's easy to say, that's just how I am. Or that's just how we are. You know what i, I got to say to you tonight? You know what God wants to say to you tonight? That's just how I am has never met the great I am. That's just how I am. Oh, I can't help it. Listen, I, I'm not saying you can't help it. You've got a, a, you're, you're, the enemy is powerful, but that's just how I am has never met the I am that the Bible introduces us to. I'm not downplaying your struggle. <laughs> I'm trying to disarm your taskmaster. I'm trying to disarm the enemy. Don't give him that kind of authority. Don't render him that kind of power. Don't give him a seat at your table. Jesus invites you to sit down with Him. He knocks and says, I'll come in and sup with you and you with me. He invites us and He said, I've cast the enemy out of the feast, out of the banquet. Remember that bad king who told the good king that he didn't listen to God's prophet? Remember what Ahab's reasoning for not listening to God's man was when Jehoshaphat said, hey, why don't you pray about this? Ahab says, there's yet a king, yet one man, by whom we may inquire the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat says, whoa, 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 please don't think that. Listen, you know who told Ahab that the prophet of God had nothing good to say? The 400 other prophets he was plugged into. They convinced him that God was his enemy. They convinced him that God had nothing good to say. One of the false prophets literally walks up to God's man and slaps him in the face. When the king relent and the king relents to hear his voice. That's what the enemy does to God's word. He shuts it, he silences it. If you give him authority to do so. He mocks God's word. He belittles God's word because we let him sit down in the first place. Verse 21 tells us they get mad at Moses for their struggle. He was only trying to help them. We've got to break this cycle of de-emphasizing the power of God's Word, don't we? God is always trying to get His people to live in the liberty of knowing Him and being His. The Jews, as well as, as, as we as well, they saw themselves as Pharaoh's slaves, and this is so powerful. And we've just got a few more minutes, but this is so powerful. I want us to get this. We've, we, need, we need to trust in God's desire to free us as much as we need to trust His ability to. God wants to free you because He loves you. This is not just about believing that God can. It's believing that God wants to. Right? Because what was the initiator? God demonstrated His love 
toward us while we were still sinners. So this was God's idea. So we've got to allow God to have that place over us. We've got to understand He wants us. Not only trust Him. Romans 6.14 tells us, For sin will no longer have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Trusting involves letting God love us and letting God free us. It involves hearing Him say, Let my people go, and saying, Wow, I'm one of your people, God. Maybe that's where we've messed up. We've moved past that marvel. We've moved past that place of awe and wonder. Wow, He says, I am His child. And again, when we place our faith in His Word, we activate and release His power over us and around us. And we'll talk about this before we leave. How can we do this? How can we release God's Word and activate God's Word in our life? It all begins with hearing His voice, repeating His voice, following His voice. Of course, you've all quoted Ephesians 6, take the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. But do you believe it? We've all heard 2 Corinthians 10.4, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to break down the strongholds. But do you behave like that's true? I want to share this passage with you from Hebrews. It's commentary on how Exodus' generation never truly wrapped their arms around this, even after God physically freed them. Listen to what Hebrews tells us. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now listen to this. For good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So what was the missing link? They did not trust in the Word and allow the Word to have power over them. They heard it, but they didn't trust in it. And therefore, it was never released over them. But the promise remains to you and me. For we who have believed enter that rest. So there is a rest. There is a possibility of breaking free from this bondage. Hebrews 4.11 tells us, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God has the power to do what you can't do. To knock down, to pierce through, to cut through, to carve out, to deliver you from the enemy's grip. So how can we begin to trust God's Word more and thus release God's power in our lives it begins with reading it. Reading it. That's simple, isn't it? Making a decision to say, as David said, I've stored your word in my heart. I will not forget it. But you don't just read it, you learn it. You abide in His word. And abiding in His word is what leads to liberty. It's what leads to bearing fruit. And when you read it and you learn it, you start to believe it. I've chosen the way of faithfulness, David said. I've set it before me as my only option. But we don't just believe it, we start speaking it. Hebrews 10 says to hold fast to the confession of hope. That we've read it, we've learned it, we believe it, now we're speaking it out as the enemy tries to water it down. 
Of course, we also practice it. We aren't just hearers of the Word, but we must be doers. God's the initiator. His Spirit is moving in your direction. If you just do the first part, if you read it, a spark is ignited. A fire is lit. A passion catches wind. And it's like anything you ever encountered that caught your attention before. You'll start to want more. You'll start to hunger and crave for more. You'll find yourself thinking about it and wanting to know more about it. I promise you, if this was just up to us, we'd fall asleep every time. But I promise you, the Spirit of God moves from page to person. Just give it a chance. Be sincere. Let the Spirit lead you to this place. Read it, and you'll want to read more of it. And you'll want to learn it. And you'll want to believe it. And you'll start speaking it. And you'll start seeing the Word and seeing how important and how life-changing it can be to practice it. And you say, well, I don't, how do I know this is going to work? Because God said, you're mine. And God is speaking to your enemies whether you hear Him say it or not. Let my people go. And if God means that, whew, if we just trust Him. If God doesn't mean that, then none of this is going to work. If God is not actually saying that, then we're toast and we're made fools of if we try it. But you and I know better. And maybe it's time that we step back and we hear God say, let my child go. And maybe it's time we start marveling at that command every day. Maybe it's time that we think, wow, God wants us. We are His people. And you can face your enemies because God has already faced them. And whereas the Exodus is to preview, we know He has defeated the enemy through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Amen? He's speaking to the enemy for you from a place of victory. So we can say like David did. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. They have no power over me. You've anointed me. You've filled my cup. In the presence of my enemies, God has prepared a table for us. The enemies won't back down, but God won't either. And the resurrection of Jesus makes it emphatically and undeniably clear. Even though the enemies won't back down, God won't either, and we know that only one wins. The Apostle Paul praised the Lord when he wrote this. The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So sin has no power, law has no power to disable or discourage. Because Jesus has won. So maybe it's time that we start listening to him and start allowing his voice to free us like we have the capability and the possibility and the gift of salvation to do so with. I know, I hope this encourages somebody tonight. I hope this is, I, hope, I believe this can be life-changing for somebody if you start letting God face the enemy for you and through you and you start listening to what God has said to you because God means what he said I hope we believe him and I hope that we will activate this in our life because it can change 
everything if we trust him. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much. God, you see us struggle every day, whether it's with a debilitating addiction, whether it's anxiety, whether it's fear or doubt, anger, bitterness, whether it's a coworker or a family member, whatever it is and whoever it is, they're coming at us with the power of the enemy, Satan, who has been defeated and has been sentenced to the lake of fire. He has no authority over us. He has no power over us. He has no chance to win over us. We have been saved by Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. We are covered by His blood. We are filled with His Spirit. And the enemy has nothing on your kingdom or your people. Yet, God, sometimes we still struggle at walking in that freedom. I don't know why, but we do. God, may we just hear your voice tonight. Let my child go. And may we look up to you and realize that you are our king. You are our savior. You are our father. We are not slaves anymore to the enemy or to his taskmasters. God, help us to face the enemy with the word every day to read and learn and believe and speak and practice this and to see the power of heaven move into our life. God, I love you and I thank you so much for this text. Thank you for the power it's given me tonight. And I pray that the promise of this word would change somebody's life. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.